So Ravobi says a very interesting point in his part about knowing yourself. It's, it's a quite a confusing point that we've dealt with before. Let's explore it to maybe flesh out a little bit of the details. And that is, why? What, what, am I, what am I doing in this world? What am I actually trying to do? What am I actually trying to do? So the simple answer is, well, you know, you need purpose. You need to be able to come into this world and do something for the world. And once we spoke about how extremely difficult it actually is to do something for the world, you know, I would say that probably, I don't know exactly who can guess statistically, but 99% of the world's population is born and dies and no one really gets to hear about them. And in terms of measuring their contribution to global welfare it's totally insignificant. There are the rare people in every generation that make a significant contribution. Their names are known by all. But in terms of seeing them in the context of the larger world population, they are essentially irrelevant. Which means that if we try to measure our mission in life in terms of our contribution to the world on a global scale, so the chances are none of us are really here to do anything of any value. <laughs> Really I hate to. Office, I hate to break to it to you. Oh, uh, so you learn from Pirko Avos that we're not supposed to try to do leadership things. Well, I think maybe you need to read Pirko Avos again. No, we're allowed to do leadership, but we're not supposed to like go into like government. Oh, like yes, we're not meant to govern ourselves. That's great. Thank you, Andrew. Maybe you ought to read that mission again, like I said initially. <laughs> yes, Kruger. So you can't change the whole world, but I mean, you can have an impact on one or two people around you. And so that's the question. Is our impact... Change to someone's life and, you know, each person will So every person, what we're saying is, what you're suggesting is, well, maybe there's people who are like, they're the, they're the, the major trend changers, and those are the guys who are kind of in the spotlight, and they do the big stuff. And then you get people who do a little bit more, they're a little bit more famous, but not world famous, and then you get the people who are a little less famous. So there's kind of this, this, this hierarchy of the kind of impact that you have on the world. There are some people who have big impact, some people who have smaller, but still big. Some people who have medium, some people who have small, and some people who have tiny. And then you get the person who has a great impact on their pet armadillo. Like that pet armadillo has never had a better life. They get fed lettuce and avocado every day. Every day. Kruger, you don't seem to be finished. I'm saying you, like, let's say, just say, for example, like, you've changed, let's say, you changed two people's, you know, maybe you've successfully changed for the life. better or the worse. That is the question. Okay, so you changed, you know, you, and then you can't see. So the question is, how do you measure that? In other words, what, what, that's the question. The question is, what, what, what unit of measurement are we using to evaluate the meaning of my life? If you say that one person's life on an arbitrary scale of one to a thousand is worth one, and then I change one person's life, so then my life is largely insignificant. If I say that one person's life on the scale of one to a thousand is a thousand, so then great. But it's hard to, what I'd like to suggest is present what Ravalbi says, and he says the following thing, which is a complete turnabout. He says, well, if you had to impact the world, then God can do it extremely well without you. He's, he's all-powerful. He can affect things and make things happen. So, if, say for example, that I'm here because if I'm not here, so then um, 
then there will be no Musashir, which will allow Balei Tshuva, who are so confused and so lost in a swamp of different ideas, emotions, conflicts, family issues, career problems, seeking in the quicksand of learning how to be from, and then comes along this Musashir and makes the quicksand a potential danger but a rope is thrown to the person struggling and he clasps onto it and he's saved <gasps> so that's my purpose but the truth is the Abishta has got Mahabishuk in the Mokkim and you could have seen someone who's actually a Bentra and qualified to do that and he'd do that better <laughs> so, so, so he can do it so then if that's, if, that's, if that's the point so then well what am I in this world for so now Ravalbi says an amazing, amazing condition it's, it's a hard condition to contain because we have to be careful that we have to do in this world, but how do we have to measure what we do? So his foundation that he lays is the following. We have to act into this world. But ultimately, the role of our efforts in this world are not measured by the impact that we have, but by the impact they have on us. Let me illustrate you this principle with a biblical quotation. There were two valiant women in the Jewish history documented in the Pentateuch. One of them was Tamar. Tamar was the eventually wife of Yehuda. But prior to getting married to Yehuda, she married Yehuda's sons. And she unfortunately was widowed. And she was meant to marry his third son, Shayla. However, Shayla was a little bit reluctant because she didn't have a fantastic track record. Her husbands tended to die. Bad for Shiduchim. So <laughs> she was left in limbo and she realized that she would have to somehow find a way of getting together with Yehuda because she knew through her Ruach HaKodesh that she was the forebearer of Mashiach. From her, Meshach would come. Now, Meshach is quite an important person in the running of the world. He's the one that saves it. So, like on a scale of importance, Meshach is way up there. And she was going to be the woman that would allow this person to enter into the world. In other words, essentially, the future of the world rested on her shoulders. There was another woman, also, who had a similar vision. This was the wife of Poitifar. She understood that she too, another aspect of Mashiach, the Mashiach ben Yosef, as opposed to the Mashiach ben David that Tamar brought into the world, she understood that the Mashiach ben Yosef was meant to come from her or her offspring. And she understood that she had to therefore get together with Yosef HaTzadik. So these two women, both understanding that from them they had to give birth to one of the ancestors of Mashiach. Let's look at their approaches and see how they differ. You have Aisha's Potiphar. She realizes that her seed will have to bring about the Mashiach. And you've got Yosef and he's resisting her advances. She happens to be married, by the way, to another man. But she's got this vision. She saw that this is what she needs to do in this world. So she approaches it in a rather underhanded manner. She looks for ways of seducing Yosef to be with her. 
Yosef, on the other hand, is morally upright, and he says, I can't do this. How can I betray my master? It's a lack of integrity on my behalf, which is interesting. And therefore, it's a sin to HaKadosh So he doesn't. He resists her temptations. On the other hand, you have Tamar. The Tamar finds a way where essentially there is a legitimacy to her union with Yehuda. In those times, a father-in-law could also perform the mitzvah known as Yibum, which means when the couple, the husband dies and they are childless, so normally the brother and in biblical times the father could remarry the deceased wife in order to produce offspring. So she orchestrates a way that she can meet and unify with Yehuda. And the w- meet. I mean, she kind of seduced him too, didn't she? No. She disguised herself. And for mis- in mysterious circumstances, her and Yehuda um, live together. And as a result, as a result, she becomes pregnant. So she's pregnant now. And uh, she's bearing the child of Yehuda, and she's taken um, in front of the basin of shame. She's a basko, and she's a daughter of shame. She's taken in front of the basin, sorry, where Yehuda is officiating. And they sentence her to death, because she's committed an adulterous act. She wasn't married at the time, and she was bound to a man, Shayla, let's say. And for whatever reason is, she's considered an... Immoral, immoral act and was liable for the death penalty and she's going to be killed, executed. So now she's got a conflict. She can either identify the source and she has proof that Yehuda was in fact the person that made her pregnant and thereby exonerate herself. But the downside would be that she'd be causing Yehuda to experience pain of embarrassment which is equivalent to bloodshed. She could do it, or else she could keep her mouth quiet, give him the option of admitting if he chose to, but otherwise she would die. She would die. So really she has a moral conflict. On the one hand, she's a forebearer of Mashiach, and if Mashiach is going to come out, it's important that she lives. So she's got a responsibility to the world. If she dies now, Mashiach will die with her, and the world will never ever be saved. On the other hand, if she does reveal the identity of who made her pregnant, so he'll be embarrassed. So she'll be, have to do something wrong in order to have something right happen. Her choice is she will not incriminate Yeshua, uh, Yehuda and she sends him the deposit that he left with her in order that if he chose to, he could admit. And Yehuda, one of his greatness, his grace, greatness was, he did admit. And she was saved and Mashiach did come from her. But that was unbeknown to her at the time. So, what's the difference between these two women? Seemingly the difference is, Aisha's Potiphar tried to use the means to justify the end. And Tamar would not do such a thing. And ironically what happened is, Aisha's Potiphar was never with Yosef, it was her daughter that actually married Yosef, and from him the Mashiach ben Yosef will come. And Tamar, who did the right thing, ironically, she did become the forebearer of Mashiach. So this is often illustrated by Marshall, which you've probably all heard, but perhaps it's important to review it. Once upon a time, in a place far, far away, they lived a king. Now, we haven't been to his palace in a long time. I mean, this palace has been refurbished completely. Previously, it was made from the most exotic Italian marble, where the upper spires were dissected 
thinly by wispy clouds. But now the palace has been remodeled, completely remodeled, and it's become much more new age. It's, it's basically concrete and glass, slightly less mysterious, slightly less dated. You've got this massive construction. It's a high-rise palace. It's uh, modernized. There's lifts going up and down, elevators, and there's the remote controls. It's, it's really kind of sophisticated. You go into the throne room, which has become this like state-of-the-art, new-age, silver and glass room, and the the old throne, which is fashioned from ebony, ebony with jewels encrusted on its on its arms, royal robes, the king was it's been replaced. Now instead, this is like this, this stainless steel throne, which is avant-garde. It's like it's, it's reminiscent of futuristic art. It's, it's fascinating. There, the king sits in his his superbly designed robes, very kind of chic. And in front of him is one of his loyal servants. His name is uh, Mustafa. Just happens to be. It's strange. Who would think that Mustafa would fit into this? kind of science fiction, kind of new age palace, but he does. There he is. King says to Mustafa, Mustafa, I want to send you on a mission. Anything master, says Mustafa, where am I going? He says, I want you to take that hovercraft that flies over Earth, and I want you to visit our neighboring king, who's in living on an island not far away, and I want you to go and sit in his court for a few days and I'm giving you one instruction and one instruction only. Whatever you do, when you go to him, there's one thing you do, you shall not do under any circumstances whatsoever. And what is it, your master, says Mustafa, with a curious tone. I want you to go to, your, uh, to my fellow king and I want you, under no circumstances whatsoever, to take off your shirt, including your undergarment, your vest, as we say in the Commonwealth, and in America you say your wife beater. <laughs> so, under a shirt. Your under a shirt. So, off he goes, gets into his hovercraft, and you can imagine the special effect as he flips off to the neighboring island, lands on the top of his fellow king's castle and descends through a tunnel which transports him directly into the throne room upon which he meets the king and everything is going gewaldic. He says, hello king, I've just been sent. And the king says, hello, but tell me, why would Mustafa be sent to me when he is a hunchback? To which Mustafa says, I beg your pardon. King says, you heard what I said, you are a hunchback. To which Mustafa says, that, your majesty, with all due respect, is simply incorrect. My back is in no way hunched. Look, I'm standing up straight. There's no even small evidence of a hunched back underneath my shirt. To which the king says, Mustafa, you're delusional. Your back is as hunched as the hunchback of Notre Dame. To which uh, there's a guy, on the, the guy inside, he's a, he's a college football fanatic and says, hey, isn't that a college football team? And we dismiss him as being one of those, you know, some kind of overexcited Americans. And then, and then, and then, and then the king says, tell me, tell me Mustafa, I mean, I know you've got a hunchback, but I want you, I want you to accept that fact and I'll actually, in fact, if you prove to me 
that you do not have a hunchback. I will give you on the spot, and he calls in the royal treasurer to come up with this massive casket of freshly minted dollar bills. I will give you this entire casket of dollar bills, which is worth three million dollars. Christopher thinks, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's okay, I don't have a hunchback. If I do this thing, I will be making my king loads of cash. What a fantastic benefit. So he says, well, okay, and at the back of his mind is a thought of, he said, don't take off your shirt under any circumstances. And he rationalizes and says, but had he known what I could get for him when I took off my shirt, he would definitely tell me to do so on the spot. So he happily strips off his upper torso and he's revealed to have a magnificent chest muscles with a ripped six-pack and lo and behold he has no hunchback to which the king says gosh Mustafa you're so right you don't have a hunchback here you go and he gives him the casket of money Mustafa's laughing heartily to himself as he takes the casket get back into his hovercraft and in the blink of an eyelid after being transported to its docking bay he's back in the king's <coughs> palace laughing from ear to ear and presents your highness I have come bearing gifts this is yours and he deposits the three million dollars in front of the king to which the king says and what is this Mustafa your majesty you have no idea how foolish your fellow king is why tell me Mustafa well he said to me I was a hunchback I said I'm not he said take off your shirt and demonstrate it and I said no problem because he's going to give me three million dollars you took off your shirt Mustafa imagine you don't understand three Mustafa you took off your shirt I told you not to but your highness you don't understand if I took off my shirt it was only in order to serve you Mustafa you took off your shirt but your highness the three million dollars oh Mustafa said the king you fool I had made a wager with King Stonkel Stonkel in the neighboring island and he promised me we had a wager that I said I would give him three trillion dollars if he got you to take off your shirt and now you've lost me all that money this is an ample illustration of when we are charged with the task and we rationalize and say well I understand that I have to affect the ends no you don't you have to do what the king says because you have no idea what the real issue is that's going on and therefore you can never compromise the means to justify the ends or in other words the reason why we have to act in this world is not for the world it's for our own perfection but since we are people that have to integrate in order to change so therefore the world is a playground a forum for that change to be internalized by us acting the reason why we are charged with making a living is not because we can bring home the paycheck at the end of the month the Rebbeinu Shalom can give you as much money as he wants 
He gave the people in the desert mind that could come to your doorstep. So why does he want you to work? Because through the process of engaging with other people, you'll learn integrity, you'll learn honesty. Or Khalila, you won't. But that's the challenge. So any act that we perform is not to impact the world. It's in order that we should be impacted. And therefore, if our endeavor is producing a result, but destroying our inner world in the process, we have taken the wrong approach. Do not change the world. Nay, change yourself. If that's true, whether our impact is large or small is essentially irrelevant. Because we don't measure how effective we were in our mission by how many people or how many things we did. We measure it with one yardstick. How much we changed in the process. And that is step one in what's called avoid us pride. Serving. Self-realization. Self-knowledge which comes to perfection. We are not here to change the world. We can't change ourselves, but we have to be frenetically engaged in changing the world the whole time in order that we should be changed. Somewhat often of a paradigm shift and something to bear in mind so, so, so in the forefront of our consciousness in order to effectively implement it. And that's what Ravalbi says, and he brings a verse to support it. In fact, he brings <coughs> two sources. He brings a verse in Mishlei Proverbs where he says, Im chochamta, chochamta If you become wise, for yourself you will become wise. And you become a scoffing cynic. You will bear the fruits of that. In other words, it's all you. Im You send. boy. You're going to change the Eibish to Chalila. And your iniquities are many. You can do something to rebuild Shalom. In Sodakta, you've become righteous. What can you give him? And what from your hands can you take? The creation is focused on man. The goal is to enter into the field of action because that creates perfection of self. Continues Ravalbi. And this is where a point that we discussed previously, previously briefly, previously, sorry, and he describes that that requires that focus on the world as a dimension of change in self requires what we know as Kedusha. Kedusha, as we said previously, is the opposite of Tuma. And what is Tuma? Tuma is Tim Tum Halev the sealing off of the heart whereby a person becomes desensitized, numbed to the world around him. Because of course, if the whole goal of my acting in the world is to affect changes in myself, so if I'm desensitized and unaware of the world and how it's communicating to me messages about myself, so that I clearly cannot use it as a mechanism of self-perfection. I will just blunder my way through this world grossly unaware of the environment around me. And that's why he says that Kedusha implies a sensitive awakening to the effects that develop around us. And that's when we saw the Baal Shem Tov's 
famous vote about the world being a mirror and that everything that transpires around me somehow reflects on myself. We offered a word of caution at the time to say that, of course, still the natural cause and effect of the events should be taken into consideration, but they shouldn't limit the deeper dimension of the lesson that it has for us. One of the milers, the, uh, the good attributes, praiseworthy traits that, that the Torah is acquired with is known as Hamakir Es Mekoimoi. It's listed as one of the 48 ways of acquisition of Torah and it's referring to Hamakir Es Mekoimoi, one that recognizes his place. Um, now, we have found that this idea is expressed in the parasha of Matan Torah. When the Jews received the Torah, so there was different delineations between the people in terms of the proximity of their approach to that fiery mountain. Says the verse, even the priests which approach Hashem should become sanctified. Even the Kohenim would be restricted from actually going up the mountain where the Torah was about to be given. They should They should be prepared to stay where they are, where they belong. The Kohenim, despite their heightened sense of spirituality, they too would have a limit to how far they could go. They wanted to go even ever, ever closer to the Rebbein Sholom. And one would have thought, well, let them do it. Surely, when approaching Kedusha and Hashem, you can't go too fast or too far. And therefore, they wanted to connect to that Abishta at that climactic moment in Jewish history when the Torah was given down from the mountain. Let them go all the way up to the top and experience that spiritual ecstasy and receive the Torah from the Creator Himself to which the Torah comes and says, Stop! Stop! That's probably you have to withhold your spiritual thirst and energy and understand that at this point in time you can't go any further. Realize where your place is. This is an important lesson for all of us, especially by the Chuva, which we'll have to explore at a later date. Thank you, Raboisar.